all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about sex education, but specifically, we're going to do a little bit of a fact or fiction. I was just going to, we were going to do like sex education myths, but as I was going through some of them, there's a little bit of fact to some of them and a little fiction to some of them. And so I think maybe just working through some things that either is common for people to be taught in their sex education class or even just taught by their parents or taught by pop culture um, or media that maybe aren't super accurate. Um, and so to do that, we have Julia Feldman of at giving the talk. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I've, we've been trying to connect for a little while and it finally worked out. The stars aligned. So woohoo. Um, finally. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to give a little bit of background on yourself and how you kind of got into the field of sex ed? Yeah, um, gladly. Um, I found this work through a kind of circuitous route. I struggled with different types of health issues when I was a teenager, and I had to learn pretty early on how to talk about bodies and advocate for myself in a way that we just simply aren't taught to do when you're younger. And I was simultaneously bothered that this was expected of me or demanded of me without any sort of support or preparation. But I also found that immediately I had lots of friends coming to me for information and as a resource. And um, and so that was when I was younger. And then I kind of got into teaching and the work started to really dovetail. I started off teaching high school English and quickly switched over to health and then sex education. And so it's been a, a funny ride, but I've taught pretty much every grade and every subject level. And when I finally was able to... Um, transition to sex education and health education full-time. It's been my passion. So I've been doing that for about 15 years, a little more than 15 years. I've got a master's in education. Um, and I just uh, love to provide people with really compassionate, accurate, empowering sex education. I think that a lot of us receive bad stuff and, and I want to do better. That's awesome. So you actively te- teach sex ed right now. I do. I, um, I'm a consultant, so I create a lot of content online. I do a lot of trainings for teachers and parents and educators. And, um, and I also work in hospitals, um, providing support for people who are survivors of breast cancer coming out, trying to rediscover their identity. I work in preschools and a lot of my work now is in middle school and high school. So this morning I taught two eighth grade classes and now I'm chatting with you. That's so cool. I, I don't I don't think I was aware of that. That's awesome. Um, and this is perfect because it's, I think a lot of people, I don't know about you personally, but like my sex education was, I grew up in a Christian environment. So I was in a private school and my sex education was not, we had a health class, but the sex talk part of it was like three days. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm sure it. it was structured around procreation, right? That when two people yep. love each other very much, they'll decide to make a baby and then they have sex uh, specifically for that purpose, like maybe once and yep. they'll make a baby. Um, and it's just not true. And it's totally lacking the full picture and the information you deserve. But it's also just dishonest. That's not why most people have sex. And that's not the only context. And we yeah. Um, good people deserve better. (laughs) So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to do better. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it was a birth video, which like, okay, thank you. Traumatizing without context, you know, um, and it's also so foreign, right? It's not what you're thinking in middle school or high school about your own sexuality. And when someone tries to impose it upon you, like, no, this is really what sex is about. It just doesn't resonate and it just loses credibility. So a lot of my work is about like 
talking about what's really going on so that people feel the relevance in their life. Yeah, yeah. This is an eighth grade for me as well. And it the for a lot of boys in eighth grade, they have not seen what a vulva looks like, what a like vaginal canal looks like, like even just the entrance. Like that's something they've seen a lot of the times at that point. And that was like, I think a lot of their first like exposure to it. And I mean, was, I'd also venture to say first exposure for people identify as women too, and people who have vulvas. Most people don't look at their own. Yeah, so that's fair. It's traumatizing all the way around if your first encounter is with one in the process of labor. Like that's just not yeah. fair. It, it, <laughs> it reminded me of like, if you, when you're in um, driver's ed, they show you that really, really, really aggressive like crash video. And I don't know if they still do this. Blood on the asphalt. Yeah. (laughs) Blood on the concrete. Oh my God. And it was like, they warned us, but it was like, it it felt like that of kind of like a, because I, I personally, like I looked into doing doula work and as an adult, I will watch birth videos and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. I love this so much. And as a child, it was very out of context. There wasn't a lot of warning. It was also just like very, I think, almost shot in a way that was supposed to be frightening. And so oh, yeah, it, it the felt light, everything about it. Yeah, it wasn't like I, I recently like showed um, a friend like a birth video, and I was like, I promise you, they can actually be like really beautiful. And we were watching it, and it was like even like the music behind it and the lighting and like you have the part like the person giving birth and their partner and there's like affection being shown and it was just like this is so pretty and then I like thought back to that and I was like how even traumatizing for anyone who has a uterus and maybe wanted to give birth at some point in time and then sees that and they're like wow like maybe not it just all around there was there was no benefit to it except for just trying to scare us and it was there was no conversation afterwards there was no debriefing or like how do you feel about that it was just like here's this really frightening video um we didn't even talk about protection because it was a christian school so that there was no need to talk about protection we talked Keep about your legs crossed right exactly <laughs> and protection. then have a baby and we talked about STIs um, briefly, but only the ones that seemed very scary and where they gave lots of graphic photos. And then we did a weird role play situation, which was I've talked to other people and this was apparently like kind of just a my school thing. But they had us go up and they had a um, um, girl say that, you know, OK, you're going to you're this is like before your wedding and this is the person that's going to and we're in eighth grade this is your husband. And so there's a, a eighth grade boy and an eighth grade girl. And they say, and you had sex with this other student and this other student, this other student, this other student, this other student. So every time when you and your husband have sex, your husband has all of those different exposures and like germs and all these things. But it was like specifically the girl being the one who is like, pouring herself out and then like the husband being like highly uncomfortable. And then there was just like a basically like shame, 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 and then like move on. Yeah. And that was literally the entirety of my sex education. And then it was never spoken and, about again. Yeah. And if you take a step back and you break each of those experiences down from the really graphic video that was intended to scare you to the graphic images that were intended to disgust you and inspire shame, to that horrible reenactment, which is imposing all of these patriarchal notions Mm -hmm. about the role of a man in terms of pursuing sexuality and the role of a woman in terms of protecting herself. 
And if you look at all of these messages you were given and then take a step back and think about all the issues that people struggle with in terms of their own sexuality and fears and anxiety, there's no wonder that we have the really messed up notions that we do about sexuality. Like your school did a perfect job of carrying on these really horrible, harmful narratives and really working hard to instill them. They did a great job. And now you have the job of unlearning that because it's it's BS. Like imagine if your school had shown you a really beautiful birth video. Right. Would that really have made eighth graders want to get pregnant and give birth? No, but it also wouldn't make them scared of a really natural process. That's something they want to do later on. Exactly. And, and that's, yeah, that, that's just, that's the hiccup for me with specifically, uh, I guess, uh, sex education rooted in religion, which is what I grew up with is even if you're going to wait until marriage to have sex, even if that is something that you feel like is a boundary you would like to stay within, whether that's because of religion or because of personal preference, um, you still need to know (laughs) how to have sex and how that works and how to have safe sex and how to not get pregnant if you would prefer not to, how to say yes and no to things. Like That does not go away once you are in a marriage. And so that was always the part that was such a disconnect for me once I got older was I was like, wait a second, even if I do wait until marriage, I still don't know how to have sex. <laughs> like, I still have no idea how this works. And so Absolutely. that was like part of why I started seeking out things to begin with was because I was going to wait until marriage. And I was like, but I still don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Like, I don't understand what this is. Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone deserves access to information. And the reality is that we implement that, that information and that knowledge when we're ready. But denying people access to it is just absolutely harmful. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's the way that I explained it to my eighth graders this morning is just that I teach this because there's this notion in our society that things related to relationships and sexuality are somehow magical and intuitive. And that when the time is right, you'll just know how to do it. Right. And there's nothing in our lives that function that way. Right. It doesn't exist in any other aspect of our lives. Why, when we're talking about something that involves vulnerability and risk and communication and big feelings, would it suddenly be magical and intuitive? It isn't. Right. And people know that. So why can't we demystify these confusing things and help people understand how to navigate it when they're ready? Giving someone information isn't encouragement or condoning them to do it. It's just saying when the time is right for you, you deserve no, to know how to do this in a way that feels aligned with your values, that feels yeah. safe, that feels good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue too, that kind of giving people the assumption that it is intuitive and that you will just know also sets you up poorly for relationships. Because I think that a lot of times you view a relationship as like sex kind of being at the center, especially when you're younger and it's like, oh, well, if I get married, I have sex. And I think it kind of sets you up to think that other things in a relationship, like working through problems and working through conflicts and having hard conversations will just be kind of an intuitive thing. And I think that media sets us up for that as well, of just the way that relationships are portrayed. But my first relationship I got into, I was expecting to like know what I was doing and just like have it come to me. And then like we got in our first fight and we're both screaming and cussing each other out. And it's like, ooh, okay, so uh, I don't know how to do this in a kind and like empathetic way. And it's taken years for me to be able to go to therapy, unlearn things that I was taught in my household. And like, things don't just come easy like that. You have to either learn stuff or unlearn stuff that kind of prohibited you from being able to engage in a healthy dynamic, whether that's sexual or emotional or relational or whatever. Absolutely. In in the absence of 
quality information and skills, we replicate the models that are available to us. Right. So in relationships, we're talking about the things we've seen at home, whether they're good or bad. And when it comes to sexuality, we're talking about what we see portrayed in the media or in pornography, wherever we can right. get information about it. And usually the sources that we have access to are not great. So we're taking those in and assuming that it's true because we don't have tools or information that are more accurate. Right. Yeah. Well, let's get into some, some fact or fictions then, because I think that, yeah. uh, I think as, as, as often as people, I know a lot of my listeners, I don't really think I have under 18 listeners. I hope that I, I kind of hope that I don't, cause it's maybe not the most appropriate under 18 content, but well, all the questions that you, I think that you might ask today are, are ones that I, I would say today for my eighth graders. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my policy with all students that I work with of any age is that I will answer any question that they have. And you'd be surprised when I do my, like ask, anything on Instagram, the questions I get are usually pretty similar to the ones the sixth and seventh graders ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I met my podcast as a whole, but I think that this episode is definitely, uh, the, the questions I think are questions that I have Googled like for sure, like in high school yeah. or in middle school. Um, and I, I even included some questions on here that were, I think just myths that I heard as a child that I don't know if are, are super common or not. Um, but yeah, I think, often you get to be an adult and maybe maybe even beforehand if you're if you're sexually active when you're a teenager and you're not like th- these things unless you do research to kind of figure out whether or not they're accurate if you just hear them in school or through so, like social media or through your friend group through that one friend that had a one like one experience and like then told all their other friends or has the older sister exactly the exactly <laughs> it it just you don't really realize that it might not be the most accurate information unless you seek that information out so um, we have about like 15-ish questions and we might get through all of them. We might, not, we might not, but we'll start with a few things about period sex because I think that society in general doesn't do great with accepting menstruation. Um, but I think it does even worse about normalizing having sex while on your period. And I think it, it, a lot of people find it just very repulsive and scary and frightening and, you know, and also shameful for a lot of individuals who do have periods. Um, but the first one, first fact or fiction would be you can't get pregnant from period sex. So that's, um, that's fact. That's not, sh- sorry, sorry, fiction. I was like, <laughs> I'm not used to F and F. I'm yeah. like, it's so confusing. Like yeah. that's wrong. It's yeah. a different letter. Fact and fiction are too close together. Um, you cannot get pregnant from period sex. Okay. This is a confusing one. So let's go mm-hmm. through it. Um, I wish I had a diagram present, but essentially the time in your cycle when you're most likely to get pregnant are the days leading up to when you ovulate, when your body releases an egg that can be fertilized right. and a couple days afterwards. Because sperm can live in a person's body after being ejaculated for about five days, your fertile window or the period of time when you're most likely to get pregnant are the five days leading up to ovulation and the two days afterwards. Um, depending on a person's cycle and when they have unprotected sex in their cycle, you have varying levels of likelihood of getting pregnant. So if you have unprotected sex the day before you ovulate, your chances of getting pregnant are greater because the sperm are going to be chilling in those fallopian tubes waiting for an egg to pop out. If you have unprotected sex during your luteal phase, a couple days after you ovulate and there's no egg present, then your risk of getting pregnant is significantly lower because there is no egg there to be fertilized. Um, So the thinking is when you're bleeding, when you have your period, um, there's usually not an egg present. But depending on the length of a person's cycle, especially early on when they start getting their period, 
cycles are often incredibly irregular. Our notion that you get your period every 28 days is a huge myth. It's just simply not true. Some people have 28-day cycles. Some people have 30-day cycles. But when you first start getting your period, it's likely that you'll have a 10-day cycle and then a 30-day cycle and then maybe a 60-day cycle. And especially during that time, it's really unpredictable. You have no idea when you're going to ovulate. But if a person does have a very short cycle, there is the possibility that if they had unprotected sex when they were bleeding and someone ejaculated inside their body, and then within the next seven days, they ovulated, there's the possibility that that egg could be fertilized. Now, there's less of a chance, but especially when your cycles are irregular, it's really hard to tell. So yes, technically, it is possible to get pregnant from period sex. The odds are usually less. But if your cycle is short or irregular, the odds are greater. Um, and so all of this really means that before you ovulate, there's that possibility. And so one thing that's really great to do is to track your cycle and mm-hmm. see, is my cycle regular? And if you don't want to use a barrier method or a hormonal method of birth control, and you're really interested in using your own natural cycles to determine it, then you really need to be very religious or, or very exact about checking your body temperature, your basal body temperature and charting your cycle so that you can use that as a strategy. But in the absence of more information about exactly when you're ovulating, um, it's pretty risky to have unprotected sex at any time before um, early on in your cycle. Right. Does that makes sense? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even I think um, if you are wanting to follow your natural cycle, if we're talking, because um, I think a lot of times this is something that maybe a teenager will be like, oh, well, I can't have sex on my period, so we can have sex then. Mm-hmm. You often don't have the resources necessarily to to do all the things you would need to do to follow your natural cycle if you're 16, 17, because unless you have very open parents that are okay with buying you like a thermometer and like, you know, all these different things that you need, you're probably not going to have those resources. And so just relying on, oh, I'm bleeding. I'm good. Probably not the best, the best thing to rely on. Not the best thing to rely on, which is why things like condoms are a really great option if you're engaging in activities that could result in pregnancy. Um, Hormonal birth control is also readily available and very effective when used correctly. So it's looking at all of the resources that are available to you and your comfort in terms of threshold with risk and whether that's the risk that you're willing to take. And anytime we decide to be sexual with someone else, we're engaging in a certain level of risk. So yeah. It's important for us to learn how to analyze that risk and learn how to mitigate it and then decide if we're comfortable taking on that risk. And that's different for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Okay, next one. Penises fill with blood during sex, period sex specifically, not just normal sex, but specifically period sex. I was told this so many times as a child. And this is one of the ones that I put on this list simply because I'm, I've never gotten an actual clear answer for this. I'm so fascinated. Okay, I've never heard this. Oh my God. I think that the way it's phrased is fascinating. And I'm going to explain to you why. When a penis becomes erect, regardless of who it's sexual with, that penis is filling with blood. Correct. Penis is spongy tissue. There's no bone, there's no structure there. The structure is created by the the penis filling with blood. So technically, the person has an erection, whether it's a clitoral erection or an erection of their penis, it's because it's engorged with blood. It's filled with blood. But that blood comes from that own person's body. (laughs) Um, It is taken away from other places, including from your brain functioning. It's grown from all different parts of your body to fill the penis and become erect. Um, When a person has penetrated sex with another person, um, the if the the penis is entering an anus or a vagina, 
there is nothing from that um, that orifice that it's entering that will fill the penis with anything. If anything, the penis is going to ejaculate into the right. orifice that it's penetrated. Um, so no, even if a person was hemorrhaging while they were being penetrated in their vagina with a penis, um, that penis would not fill with blood. It would probably get blood on it, which is why if you choose to engage in period sex or any sort of intimate contact in the person when you have your period, it's important to think about whether you're comfortable getting your blood on someone else and how you're going to navigate that, whether you're using towels or how you're going to keep yourself clean or be in the bathtub or shower. Um, but I think that the biggest concern around period sex is figuring out how to mitigate risk um, because as we talked about, the risk of pregnancy can still exist, um, but also just figuring out how you feel about yourself and your body and what you're comfortable with. That's a, a level of intimacy that for some people feels too intense and for other people it feels very desirable. When some people have their periods, they're super horny and they want to have right. sex and other people have no desire for sex. So there's so many different factors in terms of who you are, but what's most important is figuring out what you are comfortable with. Yeah. And see, I, I just as an adult like figured out that that was most likely just not legit because I was like, that doesn't feel right. But as a child, I, I think it might've been a little bit of a religious thing of like, there's a lot of shame with just women and their bodies and people in general that have uteruses. It's just a, a lot of shame, a lot of shame. And uh, that was like a weird like hallway myth, you know what I mean? That got passed around in the hallways of like specifically that your penis will fill up with period blood. Period blood. Which yeah. I believe that started, that myth started. I didn't know if other people... Uh, who knows other uh, uh, there's people that have listened to this podcast that we went to high school together so i'm sure other people will have some sort of chime in yeah, yeah. relation to this but i believe it started in the health class at our high school i think our health teacher misspoke and like communicated either either he was trying to communicate that the penis fills with blood and that's how it gets erect or maybe he was just misinformed because i know for a fact he was not certified in sex education he was a pe teacher who hopped in and tried to give some insight and it was not great. But yeah, that was like a weird myth that always was around our high school hallways. And just like, like we talk, I remember my, me and my friends talked about it all the time of like, ew, like really? Like, like they, if, like it fills with blood. We were all just like so horrified well, by it. And the thing that's fascinating about that is if the, you, if you really think about it, if you actually understand how anatomy works, you wouldn't think that, right. you know? So, so many of these misconceptions, but if you don't understand how anatomy works and you know that like, well, the penis has a hole and if it's exactly. having period sex with someone, there's blood, then I guess blood could get in the hole. It sounds kind of logical if you follow down that course, um, which is why it's so important for people to understand simply how their bodies function and having like right. a level of body literacy so that when someone tells you something like penis is filled with blood, you have context to make sense of it. You're like, oh, logistically, that's not how bodies work, you know, but in the absence of that information, you're going to take whatever information comes your way. You're going to look at pornography and think it's real. You're going right. to hear these myths and think that they're real because you don't have the tools to be able to analyze it yourself. Right. Yeah. Okay. Next fact or fiction. Bigger penises are better. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. That's fiction. And there's so much, um, there's just so much discussion in our society about penis size. It's very symbolic. Which is so um, weird. It's such yeah, a weird so concept weird. that it's like, whose dick is bigger? It's like, why do we care? <laughs> why do we care? Why do we? Yeah. 
I mean, the reality is that most people who are concerned about whose dick is bigger are not people that are um, necessarily having sex with those dicks. It's the people who own them because they've been taught that their value yeah. and their worth and their ability to be good lovers and everything else is tied up in the size of their dick. Why? Because that's predetermined and you can't do anything about it. If instead the narrative was, oh no, people that are attentive, respectful, communicative lovers are the best ones. That's a lot more work to stomach. You're not just naturally gifted with a penis and doing good things with it. You actually have to do the work. Um, So no, penises come in all different sizes and shapes. um, And some are crooked, some are straight, some are curved. um, And vulvas and vaginas also come in different sizes and shapes. And it's also important to understand that the vaginal canal is highly elastic. It's very stretchy. And so it usually stretches to accommodate the size of whatever penetrates it. If a person is relaxed and enthusiastic and wants that interaction to happen. Right. Um, so this notion that like bigger is going to be more satisfying. Well, no, the vaginal canal, if a person wants to be penetrated by that penis will expand to accommodate the size that of the penis that penetrates it. But is it going to be more fulfilling? Well, most people who would, are looking for fulfillment when it comes to their experience having a vulva and having sex are looking for a different type of stimulation. Right. Most people cannot experience an orgasm from penetration alone. And so the size of the penis and that fixation on it really detracts us from understanding anatomy of the vulva and the anatomy of pleasure. The fact that when it comes to what feels good to people, it's different for every person. Our sensory nerve endings would allow us to experience pleasurable sensations are mapped on every single person's body differently. So what's pleasurable to one person is not necessarily going to be pleasurable to another person. Um, and then how each person likes to be stimulated, whether it's the pressure, or the frequency, or all of the things involved in stimulation, they're going to be completely unique. So saying that someone who has a big penis is necessarily going to be more satisfying or fulfilling as a sexual partner ignores the fact that the clitoris is actually stimulating the clitoris is actually that most people experience orgasm and that has nothing to do with the size of a person's penis. Right. You know, that whether a person is communicating with you and talking about what you like and helping meet your needs is going to determine whether they're a good lover. Um, so this fixation on penis size is lazy and also just makes people feel like crap. That's not yeah. what determines whether you're a good lover. Yeah, which correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the cervix also move like throughout mm-hmm. the month? The, the, yeah, the cervix, yeah, you're... Yeah, your vaginal length is actually, depth is different at different times in the month. But when a person is sexually aroused, their cervix actually lifts up and will create more space um, in the vaginal canal, known as tenting, which is a term that I really don't like, um, because I think it suggests that there's like, you know, someone's like pitching a little tent in there. Yeah, like a little home. Yeah, exactly. I don't like that. No, Um, it just means things are stretchy and expansive. Yeah, yeah. Because I've, I've, I know that from just personal experience that there are different penises have felt different and some feel more pleasurable to me than others. And it very rarely has to do with size. It more often actually has to do with the shape and the way that it stimulates inside of me and where my cervix is, because I will try a sex position with my partner and then, you know, try a different one three days, four days later and be like, "Uh, you're, I can feel you poking my cervix and I don't like it. Like this is not working. And all of a sudden it's kind of like a little bit of a sharp pain. And then I'm trying to adjust and figure out, okay, this is not, you're pounding into my cervix and I don't like the feeling of that. And so even within having the length of someone's penis, it's not going to feel the same throughout the month. Like that feeling will change and you have to kind of adjust and shift and figure out what position works to feel better and, and not as 
unless, unless that's something that you like, if you like the feeling of it being more, I don't know, aggressive is the wrong word, but more like, yeah. But what you're going to desire in terms of stimulation and sensation and pressure is going to vary throughout the month, but also depending on how a person uses their body and engages with you. And also just what you're desiring at that moment in time, right. it's all going to be completely different. And also um, is impacted by whether you have something like an IUD that right. would make potentially pressure on your cervix uncomfortable or painful, um, or whether you're using um, a, a cervical cap or a diaphragm, just depending on the type of birth control you use, that might also influence the, how you experience right. penetration. Right. So there's just a lot of factors at play, but no, chalking everything up to penis size is just lazy and, and inaccurate. <laughs> right. Okay. Next one. Your vagina will get looser the more you have sex. I hate this one with the burning passion and specifically that like more sexually active women or individuals with vaginas will have looser vaginas. Yeah, this is just a myth used to control people with vaginas. It's simply not true. The vagina is highly elastic. And the fact that there isn't an equivalent for penises with this myth is also just really telling that like the more a penis penetrates, like the tinier or weaker it's going to get is not a myth that we have either, right? All of the myths have to do with with people who identify as women or people with vulvas doing something wrong and being shameful about it. Uh, So no, it won't stretch out. It's highly elastic. Everything stretches back. You got nothing to worry about. I mean, vaginas birth things. Yeah, they have the ability to exactly. do that. So it always cracks me up when a individual thinks that their massive penis is going to like ruin a vagina. It's like, dude, the, the, a baby can come out of this and it'll go on totally. back. Like we're good. Um, and okay. if it doesn't go on back perfectly by itself, there are pelvic physical therapists that help people. Right. So I think it's also important to know that like, Sometimes we feel like something isn't quite right with our vulvas, whether it's about a sensation or just something that like we feel weird about, or um, maybe something about peeing. And you're just like, oh, I don't know what to do. Pelvic physical therapists are such a great resource because it's a mysterious part of our body. It's geographic location. It's sometimes hard to see and hard to understand. We might have, you know, like maybe if we're really into athletics and we like are on a sports team, we might learn about like sports medicine and how can we can like repair our muscles when they're injured, but there's no real equivalent for us when it comes to our vulvas, like this mysterious place that we can't take care of on our own. So I just want to make a plug that if at any time you feel like pain or some sort of discomfort that confuses you, that there are people that can totally help you figure it out. So if after childbirth, things don't feel like they're bouncing back the way that people want them to, um, there's lots of resources out there that can help them bounce back. They don't necessarily have to do it on their own. But yes, after delivering a baby the size of a watermelon, most vaginal canals return back to their previous size. And how amazingly magnificent is that? Right. The body is miraculous. Yeah. Very adaptive. Um, Very. <laughs> okay. Vaginas and vulvas. What's the difference? This is something that growing up in the environment I grew up and I did not learn until I was like almost 19. And then I was like going to all of my friends in college and being like, you guys, <laughs> did you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and we were yeah. all having conversations and we basically similar to you being the go-to person. we all were ending up having these little conversations about like, Oh my God. And also how frightening yeah. to not, you've mentioned body literacy, how wildly frightening to not know the terminology to tell 
even a doctor, a physician, hey, this part of my body feels X, Y, Z. Hey, I have an issue here. Even not knowing the right verbiage to describe that is so frightening that that is not seen as a resource or wasn't seen as a resource in a lot of sex education because that's 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 not even that's not even encouraging sex. That's just literally giving people names for their body parts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so really briefly, the vulva is the term that's used to describe the entire exterior of the the pelvis of a person who has a uterus and um and um ovaries. It includes the clitoris at the top and the clitoral hood, the inner labia and outer labia, the urethral opening, the opening to the vagina. Um, the perineum, the area that extends below the vaginal opening all the way to the anus. And so the vulva is the term that describes the entire exterior. The vulva has pubic hair growing on the outside. It has all of the different components involved in reproduction, but also in pleasure. And a vagina, in contrast, is specifically the vaginal opening um, is that hole that extends to the canal that's also known as the birth canal. A baby might exit during a vaginal delivery. A person might insert a tampon while they have their period or a menstrual cup. Um, it might be, you may insert a penis or a finger or some sort of toy or, or, or implement for um, stimulation and penetration for, for pleasure. Um, but the vagina is specifically that canal. And when we reduce the entire genital anatomy to vagina, what we're saying is your area down there is simply a value for your ability to reproduce. Basically, mm -hmm. it reduces the entire area to something that's just useful for bleeding and babies right. um, and having sex. When instead, if we look at the entire vulva, it includes the clitoris, whose only job is pleasure. Right. And most people that I know when they got sex ed in school never even learned about the clitoris, but it is like this part of your anatomy that's right there. And people think it's inappropriate to address it. And I think it's just so cruel that people don't learn alongside all of this really scary stuff about potential infection and babies that like, also there's incredible pleasure to be found there. Why right. do you not get to learn about your own body in that respect? So the vulva includes the clitoris and the clitoral hood. Um, it includes the urethral opening. It includes the vagina, it includes the labia and the lips. And again, all of the sensation from the internal clitoral structure that's underneath the vulva. So there's so much going on there. Um, so when you're describing your body, if you're referring to specifically where you insert a tampon or the hole through which a baby would come out, that's the vagina. And that's an appropriate term to use in that context. But if you're talking about any other part of the external anatomy, it's the vulva. Yeah. I was just, I just, we're recording this on Valentine's day and I just released a <laughs> blog post yesterday about self-pleasure. And I included a stat from an article and the article was titled like self-pleasure, what women can learn from men. And it was the idea that men masturbate a lot more than women. And it cracked me up because it was like, it's not that men, that women need to learn it from men. It's that society has literally set up women and anyone who has a vulva to not prioritize pleasure because it's just not talked about. And I, I was, I was talking about the idea that men are encouraged to find pleasure in watching football games and getting sports cars and masturbating and porn and women in society are expected to work, 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 be moms, clean houses. And it's like, Pleasure has not been prioritized. And I think that that literally, like, if you look, if you're looking at it from a systemic lens, goes all the way back to sex education and the idea that it kind of got like washed over. And 
pleasure kind of, it got erased from the narrative of sex education, which there's literally a part of our body that is only, the only purpose is pleasure. So obviously it was intended for something and it's such a bummer that it just gets totally ignored. Absolutely. I mean, I explained to people that we have so many moral and value judgments about pleasure in our society, but the reality is that there's ultrasound footage of fetuses in wombs stimulating their genitals. And they're doing that for pleasure because there is a reward that you get when you touch your clitoris, when you touch your glands of your penis. Usually it objectively feels pleasurable if you feel safe and it's something that you want to do. That's something that's enjoyable. Um, but that we're taught that there's so much meaning and so much shame behind it that people with vulvas are taught to go get pedicures and self-care to make right, yourself feel special, right. right? Make yourself pretty and make yourself it's all desirable. <laughs> exactly. Attractive to other people, right? Um, and then of course you'll be attractive to yourself because you're attractive to other people, as right. opposed to this is your body and this is what you've got. And these are different ways that you can enjoy it and that it belongs to you. I mean, the notion of bodily autonomy is usually missing from most sex that the idea that your body belongs to you and you right. get to determine who touches it and when and how, and that you're the one that, that, that ultimately has the final say that's missing from most of our schooling. Right. Well, let's, I'm, I'm going to skip over the next one. And we'll come back to it. But let's hop to then the myth about masturbating. Uh, masturbating a lot is unhealthy or leads to a worse sex life. Fact or fiction? Oh, gosh. Again, total fiction. The reality is that masturbation is body literacy. Yep. The more you stimulate your... I mean, masturbation just refers to stimulating your genitals for pleasure. That's what it is. And people of all ages and stages of development do it. And especially when you're starting to really be aware of your sexuality and developing a a sense of identity around that, figuring out how your body works is incredibly empowering. And figuring out how to experience pleasure means that you are more likely to experience it when and if you are with a partner. But this notion that somehow you're like using it up, sexuality and pleasure is not a finite resource. You're not going to run out of it. So I always explain to people, how do I know if I'm masturbating too much? Are you still a supportive member of your family? Are you going to school and attending your job? Are you able to, you know, manage all of your life responsibilities? If so, then you're probably doing fine. If you happen to be experiencing a few orgasms that day, and that's not interfering with your ability to be a productive person, then you're probably not masturbating too much. If your genitals hurt, if it feels like a compulsive behavior that you can't stop, if it's something about it that doesn't feel right to you and you feel uncomfortable or like you can't um, you can't interfere with it or you don't know how to handle it, then that's a great situation in which talking to a mental health professional right. or your, 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 your provider, your healthcare provider might be really appropriate. But no, the notion that just by masturbating, you're somehow using up your sexuality that you're going to ruin yourself for a future partner. No, the more you know about your body, the better equipped you are to communicate with someone else about it and have a fulfilling experience. Right. Um, and then also that dovetails with questions about vibrators. Vibrators will not make you numb down there. They won't ruin right. your clitoris. Um, there's no long-term effect. Um, sometimes people find that if they use vibrators a lot and they're kind of like a, a easy, sure thing for an orgasm, it might be more difficult for them to experience orgasm with their hands or with a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's simply because we train our bodies to establish patterns. You and if your body has learned- a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. You just you um, just level up a little bit, I think. Like I've I've had that yeah. experience when if, if you're using a vibrator that's more powerful than your hand, your brain's going to be like, oh, I'm, 
I would like that, please. The thing that is more powerful and has a more intense orgasm and is faster. I'm going to go to that. It's not that you can't do it the other way. It's not that you're numb or ruined. You're not going to have nerve damage. It's just that your body says, but like, well, that one does it really well. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I want that. Exactly. Um, Which is a smart thing for your body to say, right? Yeah. You've learned what it likes. And, yeah. um, and your job is to figure out what you like and how to make your body feel good. That's one of like life's great joys. Yeah. And the thing with masturbation that is, is so sad for me is there's so much shame that has been placed on it. And in reality, it, it can help you if, if sexuality has a lot of shame for you and you grew up in an environment that was shameful, it can help you begin to explore your sexuality in a really safe environment that doesn't involve anyone else. That's just you and your body trying to connect with your body and figure out what feels good. It can help rebuke shame in that way. It can help you heal from a sexual encounter that was unwanted and start to reconnect with your body and experience pleasure on your own before you're able to trust someone else with, with access to your body again. It can help you know how to explain what you like to a partner. Like it's there. I, there's really like the, the level of harm Unless you are getting to a point where, like you mentioned, you're not able to leave, lead like a productive life, then sure, then potentially it could come to maybe a harmful state that you can get help for and try to figure out how to lessen that. But the level of like risk of harm is so, well, so, so little. The reality is that any behavior can become compulsive. Right. Right. Exactly. We can engage in anything in an inappropriate way. Right. And there's a lot of bad flack that masturbation gets. When we don't talk about that with respect to other behaviors that are compulsive, we don't talk about social media or video games or, you know, these other things in the same way about like, oh gosh, is it going to have a terrible harmful impact on you? Are you going to lose a desire to do this with other people if you're enjoying it by yourself? But you're absolutely right. Masturbation can be really empowering. It's Mm -hmm. sexuality on your own terms. It's not performative. It's prioritizing your own pleasure and what you want. and, And really for a lot of people checking in with themselves and determining what they want is one of the hardest things to do. But when it's just you, yourself and you, there's no one else to check in with. You right. can do genuinely and authentically what feels right for you. And that's a really important reality check for a lot of people, especially if you're primarily sexual with someone else to be alone and realize like, Oh, this is how I like to be touched. Or this is what appeals to me without the pressure from a partner right. um, to, to kind of show them that they're doing the right thing. Um, but masturbation also has serious health benefits as well for people with a penis and a prostate, masturbating regularly decreases the chance of prostate cancer dramatically. I did not um, know that. Yeah. Regular masturbation dramatically decreases the, ca- the chance of prostate cancer developing. And prostate cancer is incredibly common. So that's a great, you know, boon for that. But then also people who have a uterus can often find that masturbation can help reduce the experience of, of menstrual cramps. Yeah. It can help with sleep. It can help with stress reduction. There are, and, and, and depression, there are so many really great benefits of masturbation and it is free and available to all. So the fact that it gets a bad rap is not only inappropriate, but also just really troubling. Like next time you have a migraine, try masturbating and see if it helps. You might not need to pop those pills. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of really great resources it can provide for us. Um, So not only is it wrong that it's stigmatized and shamed, but also like, hey, masturbation. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can't get pregnant from pre-ejaculate. Oh, well, this is actually a really fascinating one. So it's not true. It's it's fiction. Um, but the the thing is, when I started teaching sex ed, there was a huge debate in the sex ed community among teachers. And the, the thinking until about 10 years ago, the belief was that pre-ejaculate or pre-cum didn't have semen in it. Right. But most sex educators lied to students. 
they always told them that pre-ejaculate become does have semen in it because they thought that if they told them that it wasn't there, it would be encouraging people to have unprotected sex and use the withdrawal method. Mm. Because if you're not concerned about STIs, then don't use a condom, have unprotected sex and pull out and ejaculate somewhere else. And there's no chance of pregnancy. Right. And, and sex educators thought, well, that's inappropriate. We can't be encouraging them. So instead of giving people at that time, the best accurate information, they lied to them. Well, actually, times have changed. And data has shown us that for some people, they do actually release semen prior to ejaculation, um, prior to orgasm, sorry. So, or even prior to ejaculation, that sometimes in pre-cum, the body does kind of leak a small amount of semen. And so based on the best data we have now, we know that for some people, pre-cum or pre-ejaculate can have sperm in it. And there's really no way of knowing whether you're one of those people who releases it early or doesn't. And so based on the information we have now, we know that if you're engaging in some sort of penetrative behavior or some sort of activity where pre-cum is coming in contact with the person's vulva, that you do need to be careful because there is a chance it can cause pregnancy. Yeah. So, And just for clarification kind of, to like any people who maybe don't know what pre-cum is, that, that yeah, is let, like if you, if you're say giving someone uh, even, even just like a hand job and the tip of their penis is like wet, mm-hmm. that's, that's yeah. what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, pre-ejaculate performs a really important function. Um, it, it, the body releases it from one of the glands in the, the reproductive system prior to ejaculation to neutralize the acidity of the urethra. The urethra is a tube that carries semen, but it also carries urine. And if semen came in contact with urine, the acidity of the urine would kill semen and then the human race would cease to exist because right. the semen would die before they ever leave. So pre-ejaculate is just this fluid that neutralizes the acidity so that it creates a really hospitable environment so that when a person does ejaculate, the sperm don't die. Um, but along with that, we now know that that fluid that comes out ahead of time could potentially contain sperm. But yeah, right. it does a really important job. And um, oftentimes it's just kind of thin or sticky and a lot of personal lubricant out there is designed to simply mimic the texture. Yeah. Yeah. It looks a lot. Ejaculate. It just looks a lot like lube. It looks a lot like just yeah. a little bit of lube that just, and even just natural lubrication that maybe your vagina would produce. It looks, it's like similar to exactly. that as well. Um, Which can be confusing also if you don't really know what it is, or if you're using lube, you might not realize that it's submerged, that a right. person's releasing it. Because, so that's an important thing to know as well, that if you are using some sort of additional lubricant, then you might not be aware of when a person starts releasing pre-ejaculate and when the sperm might be present. Not to mention that if if the person is inside of you, you're not going to know. It, there, it, it, There's not like a a burst or anything it just it yeah, just kind like of leaks out release. so you're yeah. you're not gonna know so if you are having sex without a condom and you don't want to get pregnant you are going to want to probably try to introduce some sort of birth control if you'd prefer not to get pregnant whether that is natural cycles or hormonal birth control or i'm a condom person like condoms are just yeah condoms get a condoms, bad rap condoms rock <laughs> Like they're they're, product, they're protective with STIs that you don't have to really worry about things. Even when we were talking about period sex, for a lot of people who have penises, if the if the blood is a little bit frightening, having a condom on and being able to just take the condom off and knowing that in your head it didn't really make contact with your penis can also kind of mm-hmm. r- relieve a little bit of the stress and anxiety there. Especially Absolutely. if if you're someone who has a uterus and I, I was just talking to someone about this. I, I see blood all the time. <laughs> I see it all the time. Yeah, it's a really normal thing, yep. right? <laughs> like it is not scary um, to me. It is not frightening. Yeah. I see it once a month. It is like I've been seeing it since I was 12. It's it's not frightening yeah. to me. But if you are someone it's who the normal part of the landscape. Right? Yeah. And if you're someone who 
you know, maybe hasn't had a, a lot of period sex and you, you don't have a uterus and you have a penis and you're not used to seeing blood on your, on your genitalia, like that can be kind of frightening. And, and it's not to, there's a little bit of a cultural thing going on right now of like, like, kind of calling out men for not wanting to have period sex. And I don't think that's entirely fair because it's, it's, it, it no. can be a little yeah. bit frightening and a little off putting sometimes, especially if you have like a phobia of blood that can be really freaky sometimes. And yeah. so I think having, and, and for people who don't menstruate, their association with blood is associated with an injury, right? right? It's not right. something that they're accustomed to seeing. It's not a sign of health the way it is for a person who gets a regular period and right. is accustomed to it. Right. Uh, so it's also just important to communicate around that. You don't need to shame someone. If it's something you're not comfortable with, they're not comfortable with it, but make sure that they're not comfortable with it with the right information, right? right. Make sure that they're not worried that it means that they're hurting you or that, you know, it's going to do something to them or fill their penis with blood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. But also if you um, do menstruate and you want to use menstrual discs, that is something that's pretty effective at reducing the amount of blood that leaves the body during penetrative sex. So a lot of people opt to, if you use a menstrual disc to catch the blood up at the cervix, then oftentimes it won't really enter the vagina while you're having sex. And especially if you use that in a condom, you can have pretty blood free periods. Those are those little like similar to a menstrual cup, but it's, it looks almost like a Frisbee, right? Exactly. Okay. Totally frisbee like. I those don't fit in my vagina. <laughs> yeah, I don't no, know what they don't happened. fit for everyone. They you know, they're people kind of liken them to menstrual cups, but they work very differently. Yeah. Menstrual cups use suction along the vaginal canal, whereas discs have to kind of like sit up up next to the cervix. And it's just for some people it's like acrobatics they can't yeah, get straight into. Up. But I, I, was, people love them. I tried it and I was like, this my vagina is not compatible with this. Like <laughs> this just yeah. straight up. Especially does not work. and a lot of people don't know if they have like a tilted uterus too. Right. So just depending on your your uterus and your cervix, it might also just not work for you logistically, which yeah. people often don't know until they like try to get pregnant or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the way that the instructions are often is like find the ledge. And I'm like, girl, I don't have one. Like what do you mean? <laughs> Staring over the grand canyon. I'm like, like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, Okay, I think we probably have time for one more. So let's go with let's go with uh, your hymen will burst the first time you have sex. Yeah, well, the hymen is another great example of something we've been terribly misinformed about. Um, So the hymen is wrapped up in all of these really messed up notions about virginity and Mm -hmm. the idea that like you're going to pop your cherry. And there's a lot of religions and different cultures throughout the world that place a high value on hymens being preserved as a way of proving um, virginity or lack of sexual experience. We have this notion that the hymen is like this taut piece of saran wrap that covers the vaginal opening and that the first time you have penetrative sex, it like pops it and there's blood everywhere and it's like a pinata or something. Um, And that's just simply not true. The hymen is actually closer to a donut shape and it kind of sits um, at the opening of the vagina and it is a very important piece of anatomy for people who are younger because it prevents poop from entering the vulva when you're a baby. It basically kind of like closes off the vaginal opening there so that you don't get a urinary tract infection. No um, way. And, yeah. So that's, it's a, that's it's a really, like with diapers and stuff. If you're sitting in your own feces. Yeah. If you ever change a baby who has a vulva's diaper, when there's poop, it gets up and I'm a nanny. And so that's so, my every day. Yeah, so I, I, I totally. have had so many thoughts about like, how are these kiddos not just having like horrible like infections? Infections. Yeah. It's, and the large part of it is because of the hymen, but no it's, that's its function. And its function is not to show your purity. 
It's to keep poop out of your vagina. Um, and it does a really good job of that. And then as you get older and your body begins to mature and begins to sexually mature, it takes less of a significant role. And so oftentimes people will notice that there is extra tissue around the vaginal opening. And as they get older, whether they use a tampon or a cup or just engage in different activities, they'll notice that it it has some wear and tear. And most people don't have a completely intact hymen. Oftentimes it's like a crescent moon or sometimes it's a little bit more covered, but it has like more perforations. If a person had a completely sealed hymen that prevented anything from exiting, once you started getting your period or even had discharge, it would be stuck in there and you'd get an infection. So there's always some sort of passage of things. The, the, the hymen doesn't just seal in the vagina. Right. Um, but as sense. you get older... Yeah. But as you get older, it kind of wears back a little. And for some people, the first time they have penetrative sex, if their hymen is a bit more intact, there might be some tearing and some blood. But for a lot of people, that doesn't happen at all. Yeah. Mine, I think I broke the remainder of mine with a tampon. Like when yeah, I was like 12 or 13. Super common experience. Yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't totally. get my tampon in because I was like, there's something I'm pushing on something. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> That's so yeah. interesting. That makes so much more sense because I've I've wondered what the actual purpose of it was because I've that has yeah. never been mentioned. I took a human sexuality class in college and that was not mentioned in that class either. But it was also a religious college. Yeah, it's not for purity. It's to keep poop out. <laughs> Thank goodness it that does that. And it so does a really funny. good job of it, right? That but makes so much sense. That's like our sexual value is somehow wrapped up in this small piece of anatomy that's just intended to keep feces out of your vagina is just like, <laughs> a great symbol for how messed up this all is. Yeah, no kidding. Oh my gosh, I'm glad we hit that one then. That's so funny. <laughs> that makes that literally makes so much sense. I have had so many times where I've been changing diapers and thought like there is poop everywhere. Like how oh, have yeah. you not gotten a UTI or how have you not yeah. had like some sort of rash because you can't do that as an adult. You can't just like sit in your own feces. That's not that's not going to work. And I've had so many, I've so many times I've just been like, are you uncomfortable? Cause I don't know what it's like to be a baby and be in a diaper, but yeah. I'm like, does this hurt totally. you? Are you in this can't, this doesn't look comfy. That makes so much sense. That's hilarious. Um, and also really harmful, but like so funny that that's, that's the real purpose of it. Um, everything's got a function, you know, yeah, I think that's yeah. what we forget. We're kind of taught we're because information is parsed out in such small pieces and so imbued with shame and stigma. It's so hard for us to take a step back and be like, but this messed up thing that's so socially charged and stigmatized and has so much purity placed on it. Really? It's just about poop. You know, like when we really look at all these pieces, we realize this is ridiculous. If we actually understand how things function, they make a lot more sense and we're more empowered to live a life we want. Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so glad we were able to do this. You you have a you're obviously so well informed about this, but you also have a great way of explaining things that I, I I'm sure your students learn so much and are like so gonna be so much more well prepared for life, which makes me so happy that kiddos are not having the same sex sex ad experience that I had. That makes me so happy. <laughs> doing what I can. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have anything that you'd like to plug before we head out? I know you have a fantastic Instagram page that I've been oh, following for a little you. bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. My Instagram handle is at giving the talk and that's where I uh, do my magic online. You can also find my website, giving the talk and you can reach me at Julia at giving the talk, which is my email. Um, but I love connecting with people. So if people are looking for speakers or teachers or just someone to ask a question of, I feel like the ultimate privilege as a teacher is being able to share information. So I love 
getting it out there as any way I can. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I think this will be really helpful. I learned things. I mean, I've, I've been doing That's research great. on this forever and I'm still learning. So it's super helpful. Um, but thank you again. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And as always to end our time and clench your jaw, take a deep breath. And remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys next week.